0: Please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we talk writing and story development with a guest that has worked for every major studio in Hollywood. Her career spans both television and film. As Senior Vice President of Talent Development for Warner Media Entertainment, she oversaw emerging artist programs for HBO, HBO Max, and Turner. She transitioned from TV executive to full-time writer, and she shares her knowledge in her Amazon bestseller, The Executive Chair, A Writer's Guide to TV Series Development. Coming up is my discussion with writer and producer, Kelly Edwards. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Good. The smile, I wish they could see your smile. It's quite (laughs) contagious. Aw. Well, you came referred by a guest that was previously on Waco Lynn, a screenwriter that I know and knew through some theater writing and Austin Film Festival. So I love referrals because it usually means the person's super smart, very talented, and full of golden nuggets. So the pressure's on.
1: Don't worry. I'm good.
0: Did I take you away from your writing today?
1: I usually write from 4.30 in the morning to 8, so I'm clear. After that, there's a precipitous drop-off in creativity and ability, so I just clean things up and reorganize and make lists for the rest of the day. So I've already hit my peak. I'm way past my prime today, so... (laughs) You get what you get.
0: Why is your creativity in a state of ready so early in the morning?
1: Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a spiritual monk sitting on top of a mountain, but I think it's because when you wake up, you're in that sort of semi-REM state still. You're still coming out of it. And there's so much that comes up in your subconscious during your dream state anyway, that I think that it's when I feel the most able to tap into whatever that creative thing is feel like that's sort of when when I'm freshest, and I really try to capture that in my writing. And quite honestly, I've dreamt a lot of screenplays, I've dreamt a lot of material, and I just come up from my dream state, and then I just transcribe it. So I try to make sure that I'm tapping into that as much as possible.
0: You're saying that you're cheating, is what? <laughs> I am
1: cheating. <laughs> I would hope that there's something more than more into in creativity than just the slog of, you know, getting your faces after a period you have to put in there. I think that there should be there should be some sort of magic a part, as part of this whole process. Otherwise, what's the point if it's just drudgery? So I do find that there's this magic time that sort of happens. And that 4 30 AM I just get excited. I get so excited about waking up and having that. And that's usually when I I wake up and I do a little meditation. So I'm mm-hmm. getting as I'm trying to be as conscious about my sort of moving into my body and having that mental state grounded.
0: Yeah. an awareness. Yeah. Things pop. I'm very productive in the morning too, but I think it's because my judge in my head doesn't wake up till about 10. I literally don't bring that to the party.
1: Although there are times when I feel like panic is really, it comes up first. Like sometimes it's like, oh my God, did I pay my mortgage? Oh my God. you know, oh. What am I going to do for rent? There can be that weird, oh crap. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Where I am at this moment and am I okay? So you got to sort of make sure that you're in a good place. So that's why I think the meditation really helps because it silences some of that horror and just sort of gets you into the into the good stuff.
0: We are all obligated to pay our bills and we all have a responsibility to feed our children. So I do find that sometimes I knock that out first. Mm -hmm. I stack up the bills and I pay the bill so that the end of it, I have no excuse not to write.
1: (laughs) Right. All right. The one thing that I do find will curtail all of the good before I even can get started is social media. So if I go on to either my social platforms first thing, or I check my emails, or I'm looking up HuffPo or CNN, it will dissipate so fast. So I have to really push that off and, and resist the temptation to get into it. If eight o'clock comes around, then I'll then I'll check things.
0: You treat yourself. Yeah, I I will say it is a... (laughs) Torture yourself. (laughs) Well, before torture, treat yourself to something. But I do think that the socials are, it's sort of a runaway excuse. It's like all the windows are opening and you're looking every direction. When I'm writing and I go, oh, I'll just quick go check Facebook. It's like ridiculous. And you know better, human beings are self-sabotaging. It's like you can't sit with a cookie jar on one side of your computer and, you know, a keg on the other and and not be tempted <laughs> along the way. That sounds you know? so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, in a weird way, watching people on TikTok dance stupid dances, it's just commercials that are unnecessary in your writing day.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that there's anything good that comes out of checking deadline before you get your own stuff. Like, there's just nothing productive about any of that. And you'll just end up going down into a spiral of uselessness. It's the distractions everywhere. It's the devil at your door where you just really have to focus in on well, what do you want to say today? And how do you want to express yourself and what do you want to communicate to somebody that's going to be uplifting or or give them a deeper understanding of who you are and the, the world around you. And I think when we are really focused on that, we we do better work.
0: Well let's give a little bit of context because I know that you have a long history as a TV executive, but you have since authored the book. the executive chair. And in it, you do offer quite a bit of advice, a quick and deep dive into the entertainment industry and what they can do. So I want to tap your brain without draining you of all your secrets and information about kind of how you did at the time speak to writers and directors who were on the rise, trying to focus them on what is their message, what is their story? Because that must've had to be a place that you had a lot of clarity move things ahead as a producer or an executive producer?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of what I did and still do is I listen. I try to hear the sentiment between the lines. So there's a perfect example of this is, and I think I say this in the in the book, I had this young writer who had never written a, a full pilot before, and he'd only written two shorts. The guy is now executive producer in his own right. And that's only been seven years since he was in our program. And I found that he he had a lot of really great ideas, but they weren't really coming together in this particular script that we were working on uh, with him. And we literally sat on the floor and we pulled the script apart and we talked about, well, what are you really trying to say? And the thing that he was trying to say was so succinct and so brilliant. And he hadn't figured out yet how to move that through a story. And he had all this extra stuff that he didn't really need and characters that we didn't really need. And it was just sort of streamlining and really hearing what he had to say and not trying to put myself into it and not saying, well, I think it's this. But when I heard from him what he wanted to do, it was very, very clear how to get there. My ability, I think, cultivated over the 35 years that I've been doing this, even before as a a writer's assistant, was just the ability to hone in on what's your theme, who's your main character, what is that person's philosophy, And then how do we get that person from point A to point B in your pilot? And sometimes it just takes another human being to bounce that off of the superpower I might have might be hearing those threads and hearing under, you know, and I, I think also when I, when I read a script, I can tell from reading a script, what is the writer's most important intention Like you can tell it in the, in the care that they take with a particular scene or a particular character And it's sort of looking for those things that really hits home in their gut and being able to put that, help them find that on the page. Those are sort of the things that I bring to the party.
0: What you're talking about, in a way, is a story therapist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so.
0: A person who they trust enough to tell their intent. And when you talk about, for the listener, when you talk about breaking the script apart, you, you know, you're talking about looking at those scenes individually and figuring out what that character, the why of it, and why is the story need to be told now? What is it that we want everybody to come home with? Because a lot of stuff, I think more and more these days with media driving and how things are marketed, has a tendency to be a lot of hooks and a lot of explosions and a lot of cleavage and a lot of whatever they think is selling overseas because revenue is driving the marketing. Yes. The heart of all of this is that character development and that story? And how is it unique to this particular writer or director? Sometimes they decorate all of it to please all the people they think want this production moment or this episodic, we need to write something for the star here. So distilling it, and and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think it's sometimes hard to do for our own story. You write Mm -hmm. something don't, don't you rely on somebody else to ask you a couple of questions where you go, oh.
1: Absolutely. When you're forced to talk about it, when you're forced to explain it, you get more clarity. And you go, oh, that's what I'm trying to say. Or, oh, that's what I forgot. For example, I just, I just finished the first draft of a novel. And it's an idea that's been sort of percolating in my head. And I'm not quite sure I nailed it, but I'm pretty close. But every time I have to tell someone about this novel, I get a little bit more clear. And I make changes and I realize that there are certain characters that I probably, I need to shy away from and some things I need to run towards, but I'm getting a little bit more succinct about my own work and how to pull that thread through. And I actually think that's the benefit of a writer's room. And I think that's probably what, you know, I've heard that the people from Pixar do it this way too. They put everybody in a room and they bounce ideas off one another. And I think that the better content is coming out of, a collective conversation, as opposed to you know, we all have this pristine idea that a that a piece of work has to be one person's vision, one person's author. That person is brilliant. Let's shine a light down on their head. And I think that that's a fallacy. If you're going to feel it out with other people, even these mini rooms, which I just abhor because I feel like it's not a real thing. But but still, there's a there's a a value in having a group of people who can help you figure out the the things from the get-go.
0: Yeah, I think it's done both ways. And sometimes there is a unique person that Lin-Manuel Miranda writes the music, the book. You go, okay, that's insane. But it came from some source (laughs) material. Historically, he optioned the rights to a book where he got the history right. So there is an assist. And I don't think any form of assistance or any form of collaboration. When you look at some of the great writers of our time, They had an editor, and that editor was never anybody we were aware of, but they relied Mm -hmm. on that person to say, I think you were drinking during this chapter. (laughs) Exactly. Anybody who thinks they're a fraud because somebody else has an opinion or asks a question is out of their mind because it's a daunting thing to build a building alone or raise a child alone or do any of that. And that's what every one of these ideas is in order to make it be productive and pay off and be what we want. I think we can't be alone in a vacuum.
1: I love that you just said that I had a conversation just yesterday with somebody about music field of dreams is one of my favorite movies of all time. I remember it just made me feel so much. What I thought was interesting is that if you watch that film without the sound or without the score, I don't know that it's as impactful as it is with that score because every time every those those men come out of the cornfield, the moment where you see him with his father, the moment where anytime that there's something, you know, when they're playing baseball and they're having a great time on the field, that music is so much part of, of your experience that you cannot do that without a collaborator. I would never be able to make a film as brilliant as that without someone scoring the heck out of it in the way that 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 happened. If you think about, you know, Star Wars, you think about any Jaws, think about any of your mo- favorite movies. I just watched The The Godfather. When we were yeah. talking about how much that refrain comes through the entire film and it just elevates everything.
0: And it's a very interesting way to co-parent too, because in the state where the music is there or the beds of the music, they often have an emotional resonance that exists in the scene and that the actors are playing sometimes but it, it's the prompt for us to say, whether this is comedic or whether this is tragic or how what we bring to the party. And it is an emotional layer that's added to the writing. They often need the writer and they need the filmmaker to give them all those images. We've had a couple of film scoring folks on here. We had a cellist named Jen Cornell, and she loops films with cello live, you know, watching them go. And it's amazing to me that it's very intuitive to her. We played a little game where I described a story scenario and she translated it into cello, like right there. Wow. Yeah, it was wild to me. And I don't even know how that part of the brain operates, but you need partners like that to succeed in the, on the other side of it. I learned that a little bit in writing a musical with someone, and I have no musical talent <laughs> whatsoever. I know how to write the book. I can share in writing the lyric, but the it's just some kind of weird wood nymph that's makes up the music. <laughs> in my case, there was a partner there who was doing that, but it changes everything. I think it's the same with uh, visual art sometimes when they put them in the right location. That Field of Dreams location, by the way, is still there in Iowa. You can go wow. to that field where that house is. They've built a big stadium much further out in the cornfield, but uh-huh. it is a pilgrimage for fathers and sons and mothers and daughters to throw the baseball around.
1: Wow. Just like they say at the end of the
0: movie. Yeah. People will come, Ray. But it blows your mind because you have that same emotional feeling as you're driving up to it. And that's ironic because it was just a family home. It was like the location became the symbol of the movie, which becomes a symbol of that connection to the baseball or childhood. And I love those moments. I love those moments where art imitates life and life imitates art, we begin to realize, hey, this is all theater. Mm -hmm. Everything we're doing is a form of theater because as writers, we're observing people at a dinner table. We're observing a crisis in a community. And that inspires the drama we're writing essentially and trying to be as authentic and get it right as we can. I mean, that's what's interesting that in theater, just as in life, the curtain goes up when you're born and it comes down at the end of your life. And the rest is a play.
1: <laughs> right. Let's hope it's a long play. <laughs> yes.
0: And you hope it's cast right. <laughs> if you're a good central character, you want to run into less and less bad guys along the way. True.
1: I did hear someone say at one point, they said, you are the star of your own movie, essentially. And if you don't like how it's going, then you can fire the director, change the narrative. Yeah. You know, this is all about you, which I think is a brilliant analogy.
0: C.S. Lewis said that you can make anything by writing. Because you and I are writers, we kind of understand that. People who aren't writers don't understand that they do have control. When we talk about writing the narrative of your life, you can look out one window or the other. You can take a left on a street you're walking on. You proactively can make a dramatic change to every moment in your life by making choices that writers make every day. What is this location? And so if you don't like your job, it's your fault if you keep that job. It's not easy to change, but when you want to make a change, and thats I think that goes for any kind of self-help program, it comes down to what's inside the person and how strong and willing they are. Even in difficult crises, you can make changes. And that's the hardest part sometimes because we like habits. We like routines. We like comfort. We like comfort. We like a paycheck. Yeah, no, we like comfort. And and in writing, crisis often makes that change. Creating, when they talk about raising the stakes. Well, if everything's fine and it's a good day and you're wearing your favorite plaid shirt and you're eating your favorite I, food, where's the story?
1: It's interesting that you say that because you started talking about our conversation, talking about making those changes. And I leapt off the bow of a ship yeah. in January of 2020 without, I wouldn't say there was even like a, anything sort of precipitating the, the launch of, hey, let me go be a writer other than I felt like I was dying inside every day. And I think that sort of got to a, a nexus point emotionally. It wasn't like any there was no one pushing me out or there was no bad guy hunting me down, but there was an emotional drive of, okay, I'm done. Let me do this other thing that's calling to me so strongly that I need to do this. And it happened very, very quickly. I, it wasn't like I was looking to make a change. It definitely happened in the fall of 2019 when I got into Sundance. That just sort of propelled the, the momentum. But yeah, I think even that the change can be a little bit more subtle than you think of, but that it's still no less dramatic.
0: Did you apply for the Sundance Lab or did they come to you? What? How did that come about?
1: I was actually recommended. So a friend of mine who had read my script said, I think you should apply to Sundance cuz I was actually in at Emerson getting my MFA. Waco Lynn was one of my professors. He helped me really understand feature structure for myself. I could identify it for other people, but he understand it I could understand it listening to him for myself. But part of the MFA program was they were saying we need you to apply to contests and fellowships and I think it was just part of their ritual of we want you to get your work out there. And I was really not that eager to do it because part of that then meant I'm actually getting putting myself out there. <laughs> so that was that was I was not ready to commit to that.
0: <laughs> and all these years, you have been the guardian archangel for other people, and now you're right. putting yourself out in the front for whatever it is—criticism, rejection, all yes. of those things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Don't you find that the moment the friend recommended and you sent the application? The door opened, a lot more sunlight comes into the crack where your creative calling is waking up because, again, they're reading your work now. They're not reading uh, somebody else's work. That's true. I mean, you're not aware of it, but you, you wanted it. It's
1: a very vulnerable place to be, though, because now I'm giving it to friends. Thankfully, that friend said, oh, yes, you're good enough to apply. And the validation that came back from Sundance was, no, 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 you're in, was completely eye-opening. And then the further of that was once I was in there and, and participating, I really felt like I was in the right place. I was just loving it. I was I was coming alive. And I knew that come what may, if I left this job and ever needed to go back to a job like this, I could always do that. And I, by the way, I miss a lot of the things that I was doing as an executive. I love being a part of the development process, and I love working with people on their projects. That was a hard thing to walk away from, but on the other hand, I love getting that those eyes on my project. I love talking to somebody about it. I love getting notes. I think I'm—I <laughs> don't know if I'm a, a a masochist or anything, but I love the process of getting better. And I don't put any emotional weight behind it. So if somebody gives me a, a terrible note, I'm like, I'm going to eat it up and go, great. Let me do this better. Let me let me figure out how to. How do I take that and and either work with it or don't work with it? But how does that inform how do I
0: move my stuff forward? Yeah, I think that taking notes requires some emotional maturity. Now, you've been on the other side of it and you've given lots of notes and you know the culture and the language and the words. But when I talk about emotional maturity, it is that sometimes the note isn't great or it isn't necessarily going to make the story better. But it does shine a light into the why. What did I leave out here? Or what is missing? Mm -hmm. Or is this necessary? So it's more like take the note and don't have to execute everything people say, but really think about it and say, no, I can stand for this, but, oh, I see my coming into it wasn't quite right, or I'm leaving something out right. or something was in my head that never got on the paper, which is why they're asking a question anyway. Also, there are some not knowing how to give notes.
1: <laughs> oh, there's some terrible, terrible note givers out there.
0: Yeah but they have risen to a place that they have a position that, that their opinion matters and they've taken a quick course and they know how to say, you got the cat up the tree, throw the rocks at the cat, but they don't really know enough about it to be giving that kind of note. And I've found myself in those seats where I leave so frustrated. I would take the notes and I'd say, Hey, would you mind dashing those up and sending them over for me to review? And when they're rewriting them, they mm-hmm. see the contradictions and they take stuff out on their own. They start to self edit that or they send them as is. And I say, it's interesting. I'm confused how number 17 and number two are complete opposites. And they'll go, you know what? Forget both of them. That's what right. they'll say. <laughs> they'll edit their own <laughs> notes, but but it took a moment of understanding a system to make them to be accountable to their notes because people spitball in a meeting all the time. Yeah. Well, what if we move this to Spain? What if we made you a bullfighter? you you're like, well, that's not the same <laughs> sitcom in the Midwest I was thinking of.
1: Exactly. At a certain point, it was like everybody wanted a talking dog. I don't know if you remember that, but that whole thing. You're right. You have to have them be more specific and more succinct and realize that you don't have to take anything, everything that they say. I had a conversation yesterday with someone who was talking to me about comedy. And I realized halfway through this conversation that their version of comedy and my version of comedy were very different. They love broad, really broad jokey, sketchy, 30 rock, Goldberg's kind of comedy. And they were talking about Malcolm in the Middle being grounded. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. I think it's a little heightened. The comedy that I was talking about, which was why we were having a, a big disconnect, was more cerebral, more about language. I tend to lean into character and not into sketch, but I do value and understand the sketch. And so I can understand what they were saying, I think there's a disconnect too sometimes on what works on the page versus what works on its feet. And when you've got a really great actor, what you can do with the physical part, which I think the physical and the, the facial, I love to lean into those things, those little moments. And so, yeah, you can have a huge disconnect just even on the understanding of what that note
0: means. Yeah. The raise of an eyebrow can replace a punchline many times. Exactly. Sometimes an actor is so good at it that you rely on their delivery ability, rather whether it's an eye roll or something else. But in order to get the leadership behind that, tone makes a huge difference. It is nuanced. It is, there are many things that I have not found funny in reading a script. And then I watched the show and I went, I really missed what's going on there. And then there's many times that I think, there's just too many punchlines in here. It doesn't feel realistic Not everybody is the quick-witted person that gets to shoot everybody down, but writers delight in doing that. And so sometimes they feel like you're thinning it out. But the fact is, is that what's under the structure, the armature, is that we need this emotional story to work. We don't need this one joke to work. And comedy writers have to really learn structure to be secure because otherwise they're counting Three jokes on a page, five jokes on a page. This is hilarious. It's wall-to-wall jokes. Well, that's a comedy album. Go record that. Fantastic (laughs) for a Netflix special. But it isn't great for storytelling. (laughs) And and you know, I'm gonna go back to something you said about understanding centrally what that author has to say. If you distill it down to poetry, which is the length of a poem, oftentimes it operates the same way. What's the universal truth? What's the idea we're trying to say here? And if it's, can brothers be friends, if it's something about love conquers all, if you can kind of distill it to something poetic that you can use as your checkpoint against your character in your script, then you can go, okay, this is not about a hundred things. This is about this moment in time for these people and what do they need to learn and how do they redeem themselves from being a difficult character to a character they may see the world in a different way. But the simpler that is not for the audience to know, but for the creative team to know really helps everybody stay on the rails.
1: Yes. And that's the hard thing to do. I think that's probably the hardest thing to do is to figure out what do you want to say and what is that one thing that you want to make this particular piece about? That can be very challenging.
0: TED Talks are a good example of how people go into it with one idea to share and they have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of slides. And I think by reducing, it sort of forces people to, to stay to the point. That's
1: a great way to think about it. I wonder if you can incorporate that into your writing and then what is your TED talk of your script and then go write your script.
0: Here's the most difficult thing for me. If I have another good idea, I then try to put it in the piece I'm working on. And then I realize, wait a minute, that's a different story for another time we're in one thing on a treadmill, filling up these pages. And then something happens in our life. We go, okay, I'll incorporate that. Exactly. And then your family says to you, don't use this in your script. That's what my kids always say. Don't write about this.
1: (laughs) I pull my kids stuff in all the time.
0: I'm lucky to have two hilarious kids who are often funnier than I am. Luckily they're paid in hot dogs and hamburgers for the young part of their life. So (laughs) <laughs> there's no uh, writers guild residual owed to them but they come cheap now they're growing up i have to pay them back ah can i tap your brain on something that i think the listener may be interested in which is pitching when a person's pitching a pilot or preparing to make a show because you were in development you heard a lot of pitches so are there dos and don'ts is there a smart way to approach pitching because i feel like people do it all kinds of ways
1: Yeah, I think that it all depends on what you're pitching. You have to figure out what's going to convey what you want to do in the most interesting, exciting, you're telling a story. So it's really got to capture that other person. You can't bore them to death. There are some staples. So you have to make sure that you're orienting everybody and that everyone's on the same page. I have had pitches come in where it feels like people have started in the middle and I'm scrambling to try to keep up. And I Everyone's name starts with a B, and I don't know who's, you know, who's, <laughs> who. So I feel like there are you got to set the table, and usually that happens on that warm up part of the pitch where you're making sure that everybody understands this is what we're doing totally. This is the world that we're in. This is the basic concept. This is the inspiration. This is so you're sort of laying the groundwork before you get into it, and then you really want to make sure that either you, if you're doing a comedy, you're starting off with something fun. If you're doing a drama that you're starting off with something exciting or interesting or intriguing to really hook someone in, I always say then I want to know who the character is. I want to know who my lead is because I want to follow that person. If I'm selling a a movie and it's a big blockbuster movie, that might be different. If I'm doing something where it's just explosion, 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 something falling down, that might be different. But I'm really still looking for who is that character and why is that person Saving the world. Why is that person uniquely unqualified to be in this situation? And that's what I'm looking for, that conflict between who that person is and the role that they're in, and then how we're going to follow that week to week. Here's the thing that's interesting about what's going on right now. We have a situation where we've got a lot of streamers who have come up that need storytelling that's sort of going to go over at eight episodes, and so you need to sort of keep that train going. But the biggest hit on television this last year was Abbott Elementary, which is a standalone. Every episode is you can jump in at any time. It's not an ongoing storyline. There's they're little tiny threads, you know, the romance, little tiny thread. But you really can. It's a plug and play kind of thing. So, so people are trying to figure out, well, how do I get an audience? But then, if I'm going to do a comedy, how do I, uh, how do I keep people coming back? And that's character. It's not necessarily about following the who did we kill this week? Or I should say, who did we kill over the next eight episodes? So I think we're in this really weird place where people are still trying to figure it out. So the pitching is going to evolve right now. And I think whatever is going to sell your show or sell your your movie, you only you know that. And you're going to know that based on, again, what you said, what are you trying to say and who is, who's the vehicle that's going to try to say this? So I do feel like there are going to be certain things like the pitch decks that are coming up Those may or may not stay. If we go back to in-person meetings, I don't know that you're going to bring a pitch deck. And quite often, I do think that we're going to have the virtual world for a while, but I do think it's going to be a combo. And already I'm meeting more people in person. We're going to have some growing pains for the next couple of maybe a year before it all gets sorted out. And in the meantime, the bigger part of pitching really has become how you're packaging it. So, what are you bringing? Are you bringing IP to the party? Mm. Are you bringing an actor or a director? Has this been an audiobook before? Has this been a comic book before? And I feel like some of those pieces are also right gonna be helpful in getting yourself over the hump these days.
0: What gives you the clout to be the person uniquely poised to tell this story? That's usually why you're trying to bring something proprietary to the party, which is this an original idea this is my life story, this is the actor that I attach that's going to sell the tickets. Whatever that is, it's sort of trying to stack the deck in your favor. But I think at the core, we would agree that it is still that original, unique idea that can grab their attention in a short description that says, well, what happens if an eight-year-old is a secret spy in charge of the world where we can go, oh, that's weird, but he's late for school, but they need him to go to work the government job. So people go, oh, that's a conflict I can figure out.
1: I think it's two things. I think you're absolutely right. It's the idea. It's it's going to be the idea and how you tell that idea. And it's a practice. So you have to practice, 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 and pre-pitch it because you don't want to go in cold to a pitch with somebody who matters. But then it's also on the other side of that, the relationship, because you may not sell this piece. It may not, they may have have something in, in the works already like it, but you're trying to get back in the room. So the relationship and pitching yourself becomes other part of that pitch. And usually that's the part that, that you're going to start with is, hey, this is who I am. Let's chat up. Let's start a relationship. Then let me give you my pitch so that at the end of this pitch, regardless of whether you buy it or not, we're going to be in each other's lives for the next 40 years. So let's start, let's start that relationship today.
0: I think the best advice I ever got going into a pitch was one word and that was listen, which is very interesting because the nature is that you think, oh, I'm going to get everything ready. I'm going to talk. I'm going to get the story right. I'm going to tell them everything. But while you're pitching, while you're telling the story, if you watch that room, if you watch how people respond, if you see where their head turns, because sometimes you're pitching to a person that says we already have everything in that demographic. Or we've done something like that. They tell you a lot, especially the first things they say when they go, oh, that would be great, but we already greenlit two things like that. Then you don't defend your thing. You say, oh, interesting. My question becomes, where's their missing programming for you? And then you're in the listening mode and they begin to tell me, hey, we need a a brother comedy that takes place in whatever. We're kind of shooting for this demographic. And you go, you don't say, I've got it in my hip pocket. You say, oh, that's interesting because I've got something I'm working on. Let's revisit this since this doesn't work. Like if you want that relationship to go, it is not selling. It's really listening to what problem are you solving in their programming? Because you're not aware of everything on their network or in their file cabinet or that they've put money down on.
1: Or that they've tried and they hate it. Yeah. You don't have all that information. That's right. That's right. That's why that relationship is important.
0: Yeah. Tell me if you had a favorite pitch from a team or a person for a project that didn't make it to the air. You thought this is a brilliant thing and I don't know why it didn't go. Do you, do you have anything that you remember being like turning you on in a way?
1: Yeah, there are actually two things. One was a comedy that I laughed so hard. I don't think I'd ever laughed so hard in a pitch before I was at UPN at the time. I'm trying to remember who the writers were. I can see them. It was a team. And it was just the silliest, funniest pitch. And we actually bought the script and I was told that I was going to be able to pick it up. And my boss didn't let me pick it up at the very end of the day. And I thought it was hilarious. And I will tell you, there was a, there was a scene. I would have to try to figure out my memory banks on this, but there was a scene that was just, when you talk about broad, it was the broadest idea and it was hilarious, but it was about guy was in, he was doing his laundry He'd forgotten that he had a candy bar in his, in his (laughs) underwear thing. He's doing his whites and the girl that he, of his dreams is, is folding (laughs) her laundry there and he pulls out this, (laughs) his whites and the candy bar has of course ruined his, his tiny (laughs) whities. And I just laughed so notoriously. And when you read it on a page, it was so funny and I wasn't able to pick it up and I was just broken hearted. I will say that was probably one of the funniest things. But I, you know, as a comedy executive, the best job in the world is being able to just, people tell you funny stories all day. All you do is laugh. So it was an amazing thing to do. Then there was this pitch that two writers, we ended up doing a show together. They were doing a pitch. It was a very long pitch, <laughs> over 20 minutes. It was the pitch that you don't want to do for over 20 minutes, whatever. And it was to CBS. And it was a murder mystery. And it was so beautifully told and so creepy and so harrowing and essentially at the end of the pilot they kill their protagonists this girl that you think is and they kill her in a spectacular way and i just thought oh my god this is great and then you pick up another the side character this, the number two becomes the protagonist for the whole series and I was like, that's genius. And I guess Lost was supposed to be like that, but they, they didn't do it on Lost. They they kept Jack around. But I thought that right. was such a compelling piece. What was so great about it is at the end of the pitch, which again, was a long pitch, the CBS people were like, well, we want to know who did it. Because there was this whole thing, like a whole 13 or 22 episode arc. I think it was 22. And they could—they wouldn't let us go until we told them who did it. Yeah. And I thought, well, then we've got it. And we were like, well, you know, you're going to have to buy it to find oh, out. And they bought it. So they never, but it never got to air. And after that they did Harper's Island, which is essentially the same idea of yeah. a murder mystery over 13 episodes.
0: That happens a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where there's parallel discovery and things are going on in the universe that only somebody gets up the mountain sometimes, but, but it is hard when you do a pitch. I remember right. doing a pitch with a partner, Columbia TriStar. And it really was a brother comedy and there was a dad. It was based on a play we wrote and we only referenced a couple of women in the story because it was a play and we had limited characters on stage. Like they referenced an old girlfriend or they referenced something. But anyway, we pitched this screenplay, which is really about these brothers healing their relationship over time. And the executive asked the question, who gets the girl? And we go, what what girl are we talking about? Like, (laughs) like what are you talking about it's like well how do they feel about women after the this happens and it was the weirdest question it wasn't until after that we found out that this executive had green-lighted tootsie or something and it was the question they asked about dustin hoffman how does he feel about women when after he's been a woman which makes sense but he was using the same question about these two brothers And so, like, we were so confused.
1: I have a note from 20 years ago. How does he feel about the woman?
0: Well, here's the thing. When we came back to pitch the next time, we introduced a girl in between the brothers, which I did not like. I didn't like the idea that two brothers competed for the same woman. I felt it was tacky and tough to push. But I said, what if one brother took her to high school dance and it was kind of a young thing, and then many years later, the other brother meets her, and there's been a long time between and so we did that for the pitch since everything they wanted was a love triangle which is a very restrictive situation and so we get to the very end of the pitch and we say well the beauty is two of the love triangle come together like who gets a girl who gets the girl we go no the brothers get each other they think their relationship Uh, and it's the exact same thing we pitched much earlier without a girl yes (laughs) but right uh, right (laughs) Sometimes you have to speak their language to get them to listen. Yes. I have a
1: terrible, similar story, but a terrible story. I pitched, we'd gone to a writer, really, really funny guy. He had a script idea. It's sort of like Home Alone, but in a mall and a mother-daughter thing. And it was just a great pitch. Wonderful. We took it into Paramount and the Paramount executive, she goes, so did they close the door? And we looked at each other. We went, what? Apparently somewhere in the pitch, he had said, they go through a door <laughs> and this person was hung up way back at the beginning of the pitch on, did they close the door? And I just went, wow, we just went to a whole nother multiverse of crazy. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The door was closed. It was closed all along.
0: The most obsessive compulsive listener ever.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Right. The door was closed in so many figurative and. In actual ways, it was crazy.
0: Well, let's talk about your book, The Executive Chair. So did you read this pre-pandemic or when did you write The Executive Chair book?
1: I'd had a couple of pages of a, two different books on my computer for a while. One was about diversity. One was about writing. And I ended up getting the book deal in July of 2020 through, it's always a series of, of fortunate events this time where I was doing some mentoring for the Rock Birdie Retreat, which is, you know, these virtual things. And you have, you know, a bunch of people come in and, as mentors and some people who are writers who want your sage advice. And one of the mentors had written a book years ago for Michael Weezy Productions. And she said, I think there's a book in you. Do you mind if I connect you with my publisher? And I said, sure, that'd be great. And when we spoke, he said, You know, no one's ever written a book about development from the executive point of view. And I laughed at him. And he's like, Just do me a, a little sample. He actually asked, asked me to write the hardest chapter. And I wrote the pitching chapter. And he, a week later, gave me this book deal. And I was off to the races. So at the second part of during COVID, I wrote this book. And I was living up in Montana. I still do live mo- up in Montana half of my year. And it was super quiet and I was alone and I had plenty of time to put things down on paper. And the goal was to give people the information that I feel like I kept getting questions for every time I spoke at an event or a seminar or whatever it was. They were always the same questions and they're very basic questions. But there's all, all this information that as an executive, all of my friends, we all know all of this information but we don't ever impart it. We don't ever, we're sitting on panels. We're not talking about this. We're talking about our company usually. And just sort of registered for me for me that there was no reason for us not to have this open dialogue. And the more people who come into the tent, the better. The better our content is, the the better we are at just elevating the conversation overall. So I just put down those thoughts. And I said, you know, and this, by the way, the book was was bigger than it is now. I had a whole se- a section on writing the comedy script, writing the drama script. And then I thought, that's not really my place. Let me leave that to the Blake Snyder and the Save the Cats or whoever it is who wants to, you know, Manny Bassanis, who just wrote a great book about comedy. I just felt like I needed to stay in my lane, which was, let me talk about the, the major pieces that will help you get in the door and what the executives are thinking. So it's really about the mindset of, here's what's going on in their minds. And this is why we don't return phone calls. And this is how to purchase at an event. And this is why we do lunch. And this is how to have a successful meeting. And this is how, what we're thinking when you're pitching so that if you know that a little bit more, you'll be able to get a little bit farther than you would if you hadn't. And the other part of the reason that I wrote it is that I deal a lot with, or d- did when I was at HBO and other places with people coming in who are desperate to have their dreams realized. And this business can seem so forbidding and so insular, but all of us are outsiders Mm -hmm. who are now insiders. Everybody who is part of this company town, we all believe that we're outsiders in some way. We never feel like we made it. I'm assuming that maybe even Jerry Bruckheimer feels like, Oh, I still feel like an outsider.
0: What do I have to do to prove how many helicopters (laughs) with film cameras on it? Do I have to have?
1: Yeah, yeah, there may there he, he and Dick Wolf might have it okay, but I think for the most part, this is a realization I came to just recently. I've had a very good, healthy career. I've done a lot of programming that people still come up to me and go, oh, my God, you're part of that show, that part of that movie, whatever it was. Oh, my God, it was, it was so important to my life, and it never occurred to me that I was part of that narrative, and yet I go, yeah, I picked really well. I still pick really well. Like I picked every, almost every single person who went through the HBO access programs, they're killing it right now. Claudia Forsteri just launched her own show. And I think got the second season pickup and she it's called Gordita Chronicles. And she was in, I think she might've been in my 2017 program, I think. Okay. Writer's program. So, and the people are executive producing, they're directing, they're just killing it, but I never really owned it. I never really owned that there There was, that I had a piece of that to celebrate as part of their narrative. So I think we always still feel like we are on the outside looking in, like you've never really made it. Or if you've made it, you made it for like a minute.
0: But I would also lend back to you the notion that by putting that in the book, the executive chair, you're creating a manual for a lot of people who will never see the inside of that executive office to have another form of access, unless you're like grown within a company, oftentimes you don't get the first clue of what's happening in there. So we're right. not changing the leadership and that goes for gender and diversity because it's only people that are picked from being a writer's assistant to being an executive assistant to being a producer, to being an associate producer, right? Those are the only people that get to go into the funhouse. I think that the more people know, the more they take the fear out and just as you said, not only are we all outsiders, nobody knows what they're doing in this business ever. Right, right, right. 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 They learn and you start to <laughs> solve problems, but it's kind of like a choose your own adventure industry, yes. which is you must be present to win and you have right. to move towards the epicenter of the, of the earthquake. So right. you can't be in Topeka in a shoe store and become the top of the network. You have to get over there. You can write a screenplay while you're doing that. But if you're doing that, you want less shoe store hours and more writing hours. I mean, you said you took the deep dive off the executive board into the writing side, but you had been writing and story structuring and doing all that all the while. Yes, for years. Yeah, yeah. You were flexing your muscle in a way to the point that you didn't want to flex that muscle anymore. You wanted, You wanted to hone the writer and the writer takes, as you said, more slings and arrows from yourself and from others than anybody that gets to make notes or criticize, or you're deciding to go into battle when you put on the writer hat.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think the important thing is you can't lose heart because we can get very, very down on ourselves. And I wanted to make sure that people felt encouraged because you get somebody in who maybe okay, but not great. A year later, they're great. This is a place of of evolution. And this is a place of a relationship can be the the difference between you getting that job and not getting that job. There's no one in this business who's any smarter than anybody else. So I do feel like there's what I don't love is the idea of a closed door. And I think that we're now in uh, in in a universe where you can go around an agent, you can go around a manager, you can find those own, your own relationships, you could find a really great, interesting, off-the-beaten-path form of representation. There's so many different ways to get in and to develop yourself, more so than we ever had before. And people are now looking for who does have a great TikTok or interesting Twitter thread or writes those really funny articles or does those plays off the beaten path or writes those novellas. So, your creativity can explode however it needs to explode out of you and someone will be looking for that and then you you have the ability and the option of as you said choose your own adventure so i just this week i was i had always really wanted to write i had an idea and i wanted to write it as a play and i started writing it as a play and guess what i figured out i figured out that not only does it work as a play i'm super super excited about it as a play And I ended up putting everything else that I had on hold because I was looking at this piece of material and I'd actually written it as a screenplay originally. And I was like, I didn't love it as a screenplay because in my heart, it had been a play. And I think regardless of what happens financially, success-wise or whatever, I'm doing this play. Yeah. So hopefully I'll be able to put it up.
0: You can't, don't even say, hopefully you can produce a play. Yes. And sometimes it's hard to produce a film if you have a film. I will tell you this because I went this route myself. You can produce a play and you can have an audience enjoy it. When executives and people see an audience responding to a piece of material instead of reading pages in in their office, then it sets a fire. There's a competitive nature to this industry. And if somebody says somebody else went to the play and they saw it and they're looking at it, like the energy behind that and what you do own is you own the rights to the play. So if they want to do the movie based on the, it's just another way to go. That's a different form of pipeline. And people go, well, that's a lot of trouble. Not really, because you get to birth the baby. You get to raise it. You get to see how it's working. Every night you do the play. And nobody
1: can tell you, nobody gives you notes if you don't want it. You could do whatever you want and no one stops
0: you. Jack Kerouac reminds us then when writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen. (laughs) Yes while you have control of it again this is your first draft this is your play there are certain things we can hold on to for, before we start to enter the world of everybody getting their hands on it and that's when you want to perfect it and you want to make it bulletproof because then you get a decision of whether you want it to be adopted by a company or somebody or you want to raise it yourself exactly
1: by the way let me say well, i had listened to your conversation with Carrie Lizer and Carrie talks about how she put up her piece as a play she had a reading i was at that reading i remember that reading and i brought her in to have a meeting i don't remember what that must have been can't remember where i was fox or upn but i remember that she hadn't done anything before and i thought oh my god this girl is brilliant yeah so you can be you can be discovered for sure
0: well i'll be sure to remind her to listen to this episode for that shout out (laughs) and her book is great yeah she's got a great book of essays James Baldwin, he says, you write in order to change the world knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even a minimal amount of the way that people see the world, then you can change the world. We have to remember that all these efforts in our writing and in our speaking and our putting it out there is impacting the world. Absolutely. I think the world of you for really taking the guts to stop tandem jumping out of the airplane and, and jumping out <laughs> on your own and letting the troops below take shots at you. But it's really, really rewarding and going to be a big part of your legacy that you made this late life career change.
1: Good. I hope so. I, and by the way, I will say, I disagree with Baldwin. I would say, yes, probably in the large scheme of things, there may be some way where you feel insignificant that you, you may not have changed it. But I think there's so many examples of books that have completely changed how we talk to each other. I mean, we still quote Shakespeare. Uh, we still quote the Godfather, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, leave the gun, take the cannoli. I don't, I, it's just, there's so many things that just impact our culture. And then we, internalize that we utilize that it becomes part of our modus operandi and i think recently if you saw everything everywhere all at once and you see the impact of how many people it is fundamentally almost on a cellular level changed when i watched that movie i was like that's my relationship with one of my daughters and it was so impactful for me that i went i now understand her so much better so that relationship fundamentally changed between me and a child, which then I can then take that. Yeah. She can take that and we can have conversations about that relationship. It's going to change. It's going to cycle. It's going to like, like a tornado move across the universe in ways that we don't necessarily know. So I do think that those words, I think his words have have impacted so much of my being Sure. that yes, he's changed a human. That means he's changed the world. So I think he's, he underestimated that. But
0: I think that's what he is saying, because he says, if you alter it even a millimeter, if a small amount of change that you make impacts somebody, then you are indeed changing the world. But it's it's laid in his quote. Yes,
1: yes,
0: yes. I think you've said it succinctly. Is there any advice you would give a young writer or director or somebody who aspires to see their vision come to life?
1: Yes. Two things. Number one, nobody knows nothing, as we said before. So don't ever think that you are not equipped. I do think that there are a lot of people out there who who think, Oh, I need more information, I need more, I need more research, I need more whatever. And so we get into this spiral of of acquiring information that never really is going to move us forward as much as we think that we, you know, you can sort of spiral into that world and not move yourself forward. So I think that's probably a number one a don't. So do move yourself forward. Don't get caught in thinking that you're not as good enough to do it. And the other thing is just keep at it because how you are today is better than you were yesterday. And then tomorrow you're going to be better than you are today. And this is a cumulative activity. Writing is something that you evolve and you become better at and you become more succinct. Your ability to express yourself becomes just better and better as you go along. I wrote this novel over the last eight months. It was actually a year long process. And I can see when I look back at page one to page 250, I'm so much better now at my prose in 80 to 90,000 words, whatever it is that I put on the page, than I was at 1,000 words. So I know that my next novel will be better than this last one. This was my yeah. starter but I'll go back in. So it's a, it really is just a process. And if I can get better over the course of a year in something that I had never tried before, so can we all, because I'm no smarter than anybody else. I just do the work. So just do, keep going, keep moving.
0: I'm going to encourage folks. Is your website, Kelly co? Yes. Co. Okay. I'm going to encourage folks to go to the website to take a look at your book. And just to keep an eye on you because your next chapter is going to be very interesting. Oh! I thank you, writer and producer, Kelly Edwards, for being our guest today.
1: Thank you so much. I love being here. La, la,
0: la, la, la. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just two common and .fun It's so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la.